Welcome to our Revelation series webcast. My name is Pat Murata, and I'm here with someone whom I'm thinking you're all pretty familiar with. <laughs> Pastor Rex Keener, welcome, Pastor. Oh, Pat, thank you, and welcome to you. Thank well, you for hosting us this evening. This is exciting for me to be able to just share this, this webcast with you. Absolutely. Well, it's an honor to be here, and we're going to have a lot of fun, and we thank all of you for joining us this evening. You know, we started the Revelation series all the way back on September 20th, and we thought maybe as you're sitting back listening to the awesome sermons that Pastor Rex brought forth out of this powerful book, that you would have some questions that you would like to have answered. And so tonight is that opportunity for you to bring those questions to Pastor Rex. You know, those questions that have been weighing on you, and you are like, man, I just want to stop and ask this question and be able to dive a little bit deeper into a particular section of the book of Revelation. And tonight is your opportunity. You know, Rex, when you kicked off the series in September, you, you mentioned that as we journeyed through the book of Revelation, it was going to feel like we were on a bus journey, yeah, a bus yeah. tour, right? So yeah. much to learn, so much to see, but we just don't have the time to stop and mm -hmm. go a bit deeper and ask some meaningful questions as we ponder and reflect and um, as we sip the cappuccino, if you yeah. will, right? And tonight is that opportunity for all of us, for all of you out there to stop, ask those questions as we sip the cappuccino together, if you will, huh? Are you ready? Absolutely. So before we start, let me remind you all of how to submit questions this evening for the webcast. And I'm going to go to my notes because I do not want to misguide anybody, okay? There's three ways to submit questions this evening. You can use the hashtag Revelation Series. Again, hashtag Revelation Series on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Or you can use the chat box on your screen. There should be a little chat box there, and you can use that. Or you can email questions to revelation at gracefellowship.com. Again, revelation at gracefellowship.com. And our team will be there checking those out during the webcast. Now, I know you know this, but it's obvious, but I've, I've got to say it. Depending on the, the volume of questions that we get this evening, we may not be able to get to all the questions. Sure. And so we just appreciate your flexibility, your understanding. And as a result of that, we may have to be somewhat selective as to which questions we're going to be able to address this evening. And so um, what we will promise you, though, is that we will get through as many questions as we possibly can. So without further delay, are you ready, brother? Let's do it. Let's Larry, do come it. on. You, you got your <laughs> I've got my cappuccino, you got, So too. do I. Cheers, brother. Hey, cheers, cheers. Pat. Let's do cheers this. Cheers to all of you. So... We're going to start. We've got some questions coming in. Question number one, what is the most common comment you have received during this 12-part Revelation series? Oh. What's the most common comment? We begin, we begin with an easy one here because um, even as late as this morning, Pat, at Saratoga, uh, Debbie and I had the privilege of being at Saratoga this morning, and uh, over and over again... People said this morning, just as they've said throughout the series, yeah. thank you. They've just been grateful that we tackled this book. I even read in this weekend's message the email from Kendall Hill that he gave me permission yeah. to share, yeah. uh, saying essentially that same thing. So folks have been saying, look, it's taken away the intimidation factor, mm. and it has inspired me to want to read this book more. In fact, I, I met one uh, dear lady this morning who literally started attending Grace Saratoga at the beginning of our Revelation series. And so she's been here for 12 weeks now, and she's so excited about Grace Fellowship and eager to continue. But all she's heard so far is the Revelation. Wow. So um, I think the, the overwhelming feeling has been just gratitude. They appreciate us tackling this book, mm. a book that's so controversial. Yeah. Yeah. So few tackle this book. So yeah. that's wonderful. All right, this is a great question. Do you believe Jesus Christ will return, Rex, during your lifetime? The answer is yes. <laughs> now, most people immediately, if you say yes to that, they go, well, why? Right. Okay, That's right. I yeah. get it, but yeah. why? And uh, 
you know, uh, I before getting into that kind of thing, I would say I think every Christian ought to live with the expectation that Jesus Christ will be returning in our lifetime. I think that that's one of the greatest motivations in life, quite frankly, to believe that his coming is imminent, mm. that it could happen uh, at any moment, that there's little, if anything, that would need to occur before Christ returns. And by the way, and even if you don't believe that eschatologically, mm. even if you maybe were a post-millennialist or a historic pre-millennialist uh, who believe that maybe some, a few things need to occur first, the f- truth is our own ending of life could be at any moment, right? That's right. And so right. we never know when our personal eschatos is going to be. Uh, and so we ought to live ready. We ought to live with the expectation that that could be at any moment. So hmm. I do believe, I do live with that expectation. I'm not one who That's watches the point. signs of the times. Mm-hmm. I must admit that. Just because I, 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 I think that's often kind of a waste of time, if I can be so bold. Uh, I don't sit and watch tank movements in the Middle East. I don't look at things that are happening all, all around because um, I'm not all that concerned about that, quite right. frankly. It's not going to change the way I live. Right. I'm living with my priorities in mind every day. And by God's grace, I hope to continue to live that way no matter how much things heat up. Mm. I'm still going to preach the gospel. I'm still going to live for Christ. I'm still going to let my life be my ministry, mm. no matter what begins to happen in our wacky, broken, crazy world. Yeah. So that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. I do believe his coming is imminent. That's, that's powerful. It's liberating. It is a liberating that. thing. It's, because it's a liberating thing. There's your, no question. Your lifestyle each day and your attitude is not tied to any particular world event. That's right. There's a tremendous freedom in that. Mm. You're simply living for Christ because the gospel is true. Mm. And whether it's 50 more years or five more minutes, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to change essentially the way I live. That's great. That's great. All right. Another question coming through. Pastor Rex, why do you think some Christian people have a deep longing for Christ's return and and for other Christians? Well, it appears that they could hardly care less. Why do you think that is? It is true, isn't it? I mm. mean, the person uh, giving this question, that is a, I, I think that's an accurate observation. Um, well, I, I suppose there could be a lot of reasons, Pat, um, whoever is submitting this question. Yeah. You know, I, I think that uh, I think that some people may not be excited because they're just distracted. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Uh, they, uh, their job is hectic. The family is taking a lot of time. Um, they're investing a lot in family naturally, wisely. Uh, their mind is cluttered with everything that's going on, and, and maybe they're just too busy or overwhelmed. Mm. Some people, a negative reason might be they're just too in love with the world. Mm. You know, Scripture warns us, don't love the world or the things in the world. Um, and some people are just so in love with the world, they, they're not at all focused on Christ returning. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that's not true of anyone. Um, you know, I believe the number one Christians reason Christians probably don't long for Jesus return is that we're not suffering. (laughs) Hey, let me, a quick anecdote. Yeah. Can I, can I, you divulge yeah. me here? Absolutely. Asked, Pat, as our host, uh, I hope I don't go down this rabbit tail trail too long. Yeah. But growing up in rural Tennessee, all right, yeah. I grew up <laughs> in, in a context where people were generally suffering. Yeah. Okay. Life wasn't super good. There weren't a lot of jobs to be had. Uh, if you got a job at a factory working on an assembly line, doing the same thing, mind-numbingly boring day after day, yeah. year after year. Yeah. But you were blessed because you had a job. Yeah. And uh, picking cotton in the fields like I grew up doing it, it, it's not a real exciting existence, if sure. you know what I mean. Of course. Now, here's the thing I noticed about the music. The music growing up was mostly about the second coming of Jesus, hmm. the rapture. 
It was mostly about this world ending and going on to a better world. And here's the thing. As a teenager, I remember as a 15-year-old young man, follower of Christ, I was getting frustrated with that music in my culture. It was all about... I'll see you in the rapture. This is going to bless our <laughs> listeners tonight with me singing. I'll see you in the rapture. I'll see you at that meeting in the air. Yeah. They're with our blessed Savior. We'll live and reign forever. I'll see you in the rapture some sweet day. And I was frustrated with that music. Yeah. I, my attitude was, why are we always talking about flying off to heaven? I don't want to go to heaven yet. What's wrong with you people? Like the, the eight-year-old boy in your sermon it's like, this like morning. Like the eight-year-old kid, you know? I want to go someday, but I, I don't want to go right now. And so what was going on there is I had a lot of hope for life. Yeah. I had a lot of belief that by God's grace, we could make a difference. We yeah. could change the world. Yeah. And I was, I was basically worshiping with a lot of people who just were trying to hang on until Jesus came. Mm. Because they were suffering. Life was hard. Mm. And I hope our our hearers are getting my point here. For for the people that first heard the revelation, life was very hard. Mm. So they were longing for Jesus to come. It was Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That was the cry of their heart every day to get us out of this mess. Mm. But when life is going well, that cry is not on our lips. Mm. So... I, I think it has a lot to do with life circumstances, why some people long for his coming and some don't. Yeah, I, I will say, I won't go down this path too much either, to this morning and in, in the service this weekend, when you pointed out what will not be in heaven, Yeah, yeah. how powerful that was, angling around suffering in many ways, this mm-hmm. side of eternity, so... That, One final that, note to yeah. this. I guarantee you, if you could find some of the Christians in Syria, if there oh, are any left, yeah. if you could find Christians in a take, death take, camp in North Korea, yeah. they're saying, Maranatha, take. come Lord Jesus. Yeah. Okay? But we have it a lot better mm-hmm. in our setting. Well said. Well said. Okay. Next question coming through. Um, after the millennium, most people on earth appear to be God's people. Will there, will there be people who will reject God during the millennium to make up such a large amount of people to fight against God? Hmm. Okay. The millennium is when God reigns, and then <laughs> confused is, is the statement here. Okay. So the person here um, who submitted this question, I have to make an assumption here. There. They're, they're talking here about what Revelation 20 says. And it says but that after the thousand years, okay, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And then it says, in number, they're like the sand on the seashore. Mm. They surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. And then it says... But fire came down from heaven and destroyed them. And then it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hmm. So the question is, it seems that there's this huge rebellion against God at the end of the millennium. And so I believe this, I believe the person who submitted this question is asking How can that be? If the millennium is this special time when the Lord is reigning on earth, if you're a premillennialist at least, he's physically reigning on earth, and at the end of that, you've still got this rebellion? I mean, come on, how can that be? Well, my answer to that would be uh, that the sinful human nature still hasn't changed. That's a good point, yeah. And even though the millennium, under that premillennial view, is different in kind from the world as we know it today, in spite of that, human nature is not changed. And so uh, uh, that passage in Revelation 20 about the rebellion that will occur at the end of the millennium, and by the way, that's one of many things we couldn't go into, so that's why we're doing what we're doing right now, to dig a little deeper and go into some of those more arcane details that we just couldn't touch in the sermons, that rebellion points out how powerful 
the depravity of humanity really is. Hmm. You know, Jesus taught something, Pat, in, in Mark 20, in Mark chapter 7, rather. He said, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the person. Mm. So the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Mm. And that example from the end of the millennium proves that and demonstrates that in a powerful way. We think today in our culture, I'm preaching now, folks. I'm preaching now. I I quit the webcast a long time ago. I'm preaching now. We think that if we can just change people's environment, we'll change the people. Well, listen, listen. If you send a person with a thieving heart to school to get a great education, they'll be a more brilliant thief is all Mm, they'll be. Because the heart is not You haven't changed the heart. heart. That's right, yeah. Man fell in a perfect environment. Mm. So I'll agree, environment can be important. It certainly makes a difference sometimes. But the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And that example from the millennium in Revelation 20 that this this, uh, person is is talking about is a prime example of that. We are the problem with the world, folks our sinful human hearts. And so that's why what we're doing at Grace is so important. Yeah. We're preaching the gospel. Only that's God right. can change a heart. That's right. Only God can change a heart. There so. lies the hope. That's great. I didn't want to cut you off. That, I know I'm preaching, you're preaching, man. If Robert, you're not careful, I'm going to start good. preaching and, here. And, and, and very clear, very clear. <laughs> that, that, that makes a ton of sense. Here's an, another question. That came through. Pastor Rex, if we really believe that Jesus' Jesus's return is close, if we really believe it, why should we make long-term plans? Now, this is, this is interesting. And they, and they go on. For instance, why should anyone go to college? Why should any Christian have life insurance or save money <laughs> or make plans Ow. for long-term health care? Since Jesus is going to return before any of those things matter. Why not just max out our credit cards? Sorry, Dave Ramsey. And live it up since Jesus is going to return and rapture us away. Well, you know, hey. There's a lot of thought there. It's Christmas time, Pat. (laughs) Maybe we ought to to listen to this person and just go to the the mall and have a blast with our our credit, huh? What a great question. If we really believe that Jesus is returning, why make any long-term plans? What a great question. Mm. Well, here's the thing. Uh, I believe as Christians, we're always walking this tightrope. We're we're trying to live this balance between being ready for his return, okay, but also living responsibly in this world. Both Jesus as well as all the early leaders, they did, even though they, the early leaders believed Jesus was returning soon, they still made plans. Yeah. That didn't stop them from making plans. And I could give you example after example, like Paul having a plan to go to Spain to preach the gospel. He, he didn't let the belief that Jesus was coming back stop him from going ahead and making long-term plans and, and trying to create a strategy to get there, to that plan. So there's where the, the tension lies. Yes, we believe Jesus is coming, okay, soon. We believe his return could be at any time, but that doesn't give us some reason or right to live irresponsibly. So there's where the rub comes. Even though we live with this expectation We've still been called and commanded to live responsibly every single day of our lives. And so uh, that would be my response to this great question. I, I think that even though we believe it's soon, we don't know exactly when. Yeah. Ties into what you said earlier. It, it kind of links to the earlier thing. Yeah. And so we have to go ahead and make plans as though it could be 50 more years. Mm-hmm even though we really believe it could be five more minutes. That's right. Interesting. And that's a tightrope we walk every, every day. single day. Yeah. 
And I, I, I'm going to add this because I, I really would urge any listeners who are tempted to just max out those credit cards, to just live irresponsibly, to, to say, well, why, why make long-term plans? Why go to college? Oh, please get rid of that yeah. attitude. That is not responsible living. You need to live responsibly in this world, okay? The Lord will honor you for that. He won't come back and go, hey, listen, you were making plans to go to college when I could have come back. He's not going to scold you for that, all right? Go ahead and make those long-term plans. That's responsible living. Yeah, well said. Ready for the next one? All right. All right. Well said. What might be the positive and negative results of a pre-tribulation rapture position in the everyday lives and attitudes of Christians? Okay. Okay. What might be the positive and negative results of a post-tribulation rapture position? Okay. Did you get it? Got it. All right. So positive and negative of pre, positive and negative of post. All right. All right. Pre-trib, the positives of that would probably be, if you really believe Jesus could return at any moment, there'll be a pre-tribulation rapture. That would mean you could go at any time. I suppose you would live ready, right? I suppose that's the positive. I suppose the negative of that belief could be, this kind of ties into the question we just answered. You could cop an attitude, why work on social problems? Because we're going to be out here at any moment and all of our effort will be wasted. Yeah. Why, why focus on urban problems, for instance, which require long-term solutions and strategies when, hey, we could be gone at any moment. Right. Why make those long-term financial plans, a la Dave Ramsey, a la, you know, just wise handling of, of resources? Yeah. Because we could be out of here at any moment. I suppose that could be the negative result of a pre-trip. So post-trip, now post-trip, just for people listening, Post-trib rapture is a part of the historic premillennial view, and these, these people believe that we will go through the entire tribulation. So, in other words, we're going to go through hard times. Yeah. I suppose a positive outcome of that belief should be that we would go deeper yeah. in our Christian life, that we would build character. Why? Why would we focus on going deeper and being strong Christians? Because hard times are coming. Yeah. And we tend to look up. We better be ready to look up. We times. better be strong. We yeah. better know why we believe and, and why, why we believe it and what we believe. Yeah. We better be ready to be persecuted, you know, as much as we can get ready for that. Mm. I suppose that would be a, a positive. On the flip side, I suppose a negative of the post-millennial view or post-trib view. Mm. might be Negative. that people would kind of get a little depressed. Like um, thinking, wow, opposite of this life of stinks. Yeah. Gee, God, thanks a lot. Uh, gee, we're going to go through hard times. It's through yeah. suffering that we enter the kingdom of God, right? Mm. Uh, and that could be a little depressing or overwhelming to some people, I suppose, if, they, if that's their view. Yeah. So that would be yeah. my take on those two views, upsides, downsides of yeah. those views. Wonderful. Well said. All right, ready for the next question. Um, I like this. With respect to Sunday's sermon, how will the world end? Which of the four millennial views does the Catholic Church Ooh. take, if any? I like this question. Yeah. I, I I don't know who submitted this, but... Uh, you know, Pat, as you know, 70% of Grace Fellowship uh, at, at one time in our experience uh, was connected to the Catholic Church. 70% of Grace. Okay, so uh, this is a question I would think. I, I hear you, man. I hear you. And uh, so if, you're, if you've got a Roman Catholic background and you're listening tonight, uh, you should feel right at home at Grace. You know, the thing about this question is I actually, this is, this is a question that I didn't know the question had come in yet, but I was just talking to the bishop hmm. on Monday. Oh, wow. And um, he is the uh, official theologian. In fact, he has a doctorate in canon law. So I thought, you know, well, I've got him here. I'm going to ask him uh, what the Catholic Church's belief is. 
And so I ask, and he, he confirmed what I thought to be the case, and that is that the official view of the Roman Catholic Church is amillennialism. Okay. And he confirmed that we, we see the book of Revelation as a book totally relevant to the people that first received it, and also extremely relevant any time Christians are going through suffering, hard times, wherever they find themselves. And it's a book of principles, universal principles that are relevant at all times and all places. And that's, that's what the amillennial view says. So there it is. That's the official view of the Roman well, you got Catholic right Church. From the bishop's mouth. I did. I got it right that's from powerful. him. And uh, I appreciated his answer. Oh, that's wonderful. All right. Next question coming in online. Pastor Rex, I noticed that you didn't try to, again, quote, push any particular viewpoint on the congregation during the Revelation series. Don't you think we'd be a stronger church if you just took your viewpoint, taught it to everyone, and ignored the other views? Hey, all right. Um, well, no, I don't believe it would be a stronger church. Um, here's the thing, and I hope you guys realize <laughs> how challenging it is going through a book like the Revelation not to just promote your own view. Yeah. Uh, that, honestly, if you were asking me what's the hardest thing about this series, I would say it's that. Because you, we just want to promote our view. Hmm. And yet I felt, uh, I felt and I feel a responsibility, Pat, on when, when uh, wonderful Christians have different views, I feel the responsibility to treat our congregation with respect. Yeah. So the answer to this wonderful question, why didn't I just promote my view is I respect the congregation too much to do that. Mm. To me, that would be spoon feeding. To me, that would be treating the congregation like children who can't handle the other views. And I've always believed that if I'm grappling with something, I want to invite the congregation down in my misery, brother. I want to say, get down in the pit with me here. Let's grapple with this because I struggle with this trying to figure it out. I want you to do the same thing. I want you to feel some of my pain here and my yeah. struggle. Yeah. I, th- I think that actually the opposite would occur if I only gave one view. It would keep the congregation, those who are in spiritual infancy, it might be prone to keep them there. I believe that exposing people to the struggles sometimes is one of the things God will use to help grow them. I don't want anybody that's a part of Grace Fellowship to go out in this wacky, crazy world, Pat, yeah. unprepared. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want anybody to go out unprepared. And so I think a part of our job as leaders is to let people know there aren't simple answers to everything. Yeah. When there are, we praise God. We say hallelujah. It's a slam dunk. Yeah. But the answers aren't always that simple. Yeah. And I don't think we're serving people well if we give them the impression there are simple answers when there aren't simple answers. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that I personally have taken away is the incredible balanced perspective that you've brought and it may have been in this, in this particular sermon, may, maybe not, it could have been in another one, where you, you pushed a little bit on the essentials yeah. and the convictions mm-hmm. and the preferences, and I thought it was very powerful, uh, and I think that's kind of what you're also touching upon a little bit as it relates to Definitely, this. and, and yeah. that sermon I think you may be referring to is the seventh one in this 12-part okay. series, where we talked about those four major millennial yes. views, yes. and then... I said, hey. You went deep and then you pulled back and then said. Then we pulled back and said, look, we, we need to chill here yeah. because your view of the millennium doesn't get you to heaven. Yeah. You need to know what you believe and why, hold that conviction, be able to explain it, yeah. but don't cram it down other people's throats. Um, and I think that's important on a lot of issues. Mm. By the way, brother. Pat, I think that's one of the reasons that God, and it's as God doing this, I think that's one of the reasons that grace is a maturing congregation. Yeah. We don't spoon feed people, and we never will. Yeah. We want people to mature in Christ yeah. and go from 
close to Christ, yeah. to fully Christ-centered. Yeah. And so that requires thinking. That's right. Let my people I think. think. Yeah. Let my people think. Mm. Well said. All right, let's move on to the next question. For people who are new to Christianity, what do you specifically mean when you say we need to get ready for Christ before he ter- returns? Again, for those who are new okay. to Christianity. Now, this is one of those questions that didn't just come in. And this is one that I saw, I don't know how many days ago, I, I saw a list of some of the questions that had come in. And I really appreciated this question when I first saw it. And I think it's a great question. What do we mean by, by getting ready? Well, um, uh, here's the thing. The, the Bible teaches in, in the book of 1 John, a little book called 1 John toward the back of the Bible. It, it, you know, there's a verse there. It says, and there, now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So the teaching there is, look, we want to live in such a way so that when Jesus Christ appears, the word there for appears is the Greek word parousia. Hmm. It means the second coming of Christ will be confident and unashamed. It goes on then into chapter 3, and it says, dear friends, now we are children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known. But when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, Mm. just as he is pure. So what's the point? When you believe, according to John's letters, by the way, it's the same guy who wrote the Revelation. Yeah. find that interesting. Yeah. According to him, the belief that Jesus is coming should have a purifying effect in our lives. And we should live in such a way so that if Jesus were to burst through the doors right now, I'm back, I'm back, how would we feel about right, that? right. Would we be unashamed? Oh, no. Would we be confident? Or would we be going, oh, Jesus, I didn't rearrange my house. Oh, there's dust. Oh, I need to clean my bathroom. Uh, oh. But more importantly, would we feel ashamed of our lives morally? That's the question. And so to this uh, que- person who submitted this, whoever he or she is, I, I would say that that's what it means to be ready. When I talk about getting ready... I'm referring to what John says in 1 John 2 and 3. We need to live in such a way that we'd be confident, we'd be unashamed, and we would be living lives of purity, Mm. purity, Mm. ready for his return. So you can ask yourself, final word here, and we'll move on. Ask yourself throughout the day sometime, I used to do this as a a new Christian all the time. If Jesus were to return right now, Would I be ashamed? Whoa. That's a great question. That'll clean up a lot of problems right there. If Jesus were to return right now, would I be ashamed of the state he found me in? Mm. Spiritually, morally, relationally. Mm. What a powerful motivator for people to work on their marital issues. What a powerful motivator for people to uh, live responsibly every day. Mm. Unbelievable. Mm. That's great. Okay, next question. Besides the books on the millennium, millennial, what other books do you recommend that will help us understand Revelation? Besides All right. Well, uh, there's a book, and because this also is one of those questions that was submitted earlier, I, I had a little heads up on this one. So I've brought out here <laughs> a book. I'm just going to actually hold it up. It's called Revelation Four Views. A parallel commentary. As you can see, this is one of those thick books. It's quite a tome. And uh, I would recommend this as a book to anyone who wants to just get a handle on all the millennial views. And this also gives a commentary throughout the whole book of Revelation. And it shows in parallel fashion. You see the columns here? As you open it up, it's got four columns, two on each page. And these are according to those four basic views and approaches, all right? 
So uh, this is a tremendous commentary on the Revelation, and I, I highly recommend it. Uh, there's so many other good books, but I, I'll give this general warning to people. My general warning would be that there's a lot of books being published out there about the end times. Yeah. How can I say this in the most positive way? Most of them are not worth your investment in them. <laughs> Sorry, they're not. Uh, you really need to use discretion when you're getting books about the second coming uh, because most of them are just not worth your investment. But some of them are. And this is one that truly is. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, next question. Are you glad that there will be a final judgment of both believers and non-believers? Hmm. Are you glad about that? That there will be a final judgment of both believers and non-believers? <clears throat> you know, Pat... Uh, I guess the judgment is one of those ominous things, right? We, we think about the judgment, ooh, judgment of God. I mean, what an ominous feeling, right? Uh, to think that we, in all of our inadequacy and sin, will stand before the holy God of this universe. So in that sense, uh, <laughs> I suppose the judgment is not something that's ever going to cause us to go yippee hi oh, that just makes me happy to think about if if we're sane, that will never be our attitude because it's so sobering yeah. to think about standing no question. and giving an account before the perfect judge of this universe for the life we've lived. Yeah. And yet, uh, if I understand this question right, my answer would be yes. I I am glad there will be a final judgment. And here's the reason why. If there's no final judgment, if there's no all-knowing, omnipotent, yeah. omnipresent judge yeah. who alone is sufficient and, and to, to judge all of our actions as well as our motives, there will never be justice. Yeah. And in case anybody is wondering, there is not justice in this world right now. Mm. I hope we're all clear on that. <clears throat> and I, I, I would assume that many of our people listening have had things happen in in your lives where you felt the sting of injustice and the horrible scourge it makes us angry yeah. it should make <clears throat> us angry yeah. when injustice <clears throat> is something we encounter something we observe but i'm glad that one day every wrong will be made right yeah i am glad for that as much as it sobers me yeah and uh I'll tell you, if there's any thought in my own life or that ought to, ought to make me or make any of us throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, Lord, I need your grace, totally. it's the belief, it's the knowledge, it's the truth that we will stand before God in judgment. Mm -hmm. Because we're not going to slide by by our own goodness. That's a great point. We're, we're going to uh, we're gonna be totally cast upon the mercy of God. That's interesting. Without judgment, there would be no need for grace. There right. would be no need for grace. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so I am glad there will be a final judgment of believers and non-believers. Um, it's the only way that justice will ever be served. Mm, perfect justice. Yeah. Yeah, well said. All right. Next question. What study Bible would you recommend that connects Revelation to the Old Testament? What study Bible? Would you uh, recommend? You know, I would recommend the NIV Study Bible. Uh, I assume that it's still being published. Um, it used to be published by Zondervan Press, great Christian publisher. But I would suggest the NIV Study Bible. Now, here's a, here's a little commentary on that. You know, uh, as I've said once or twice in this series... Study Bibles are wonderful tools, so I hope you all have one. But please be aware that if you get a study Bible, those notes in that Bible are simply one person's opinion. Or 
one group's opinion. Hope you understand that. They're not, those, those notes are not the inspired word of God. So we have to be careful and take the notes simply as one school of thought. Now, the reason I recommend the NIV Study Bible is because I think it is the most objective treatment that I've ever seen in a study Bible. You name your person. If, if you've got some favorite Christian leader who's created a study Bible, well, God bless you. You've got a right to have that. But just be aware that you're getting their own particular opinions in that. Yeah. No matter who it is, you're getting their opinions and their biases. Mm. So you, you need to go for a study Bible that is more objective. That's why I recommend the NIV study Bible. It still obviously is created by people, scholars, but it represents a mainline evangelical uh, perspective. Mm. That's why I would recommend it to anyone at Grace. Wonderful. Uh, so excellent study Bible. Fantastic. All right, next question. Pastor, I, I like this one. We kind of saw a little bit of this this morning. <laughs> when you preach on heaven, you seem to get really fired up. <laughs> Smiley face. What is the thing you're looking forward to the most in heaven? Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. Well, um, truly, it's, it's to see Jesus Christ, right? I mean, how can there be any other answer, I guess, than that? Uh, the one who died for us, the one who alone is the reason that we're there in the first place, because uh, none of us are going to heaven because we're good guys or good gals. That's the gospel. The only way we gain entrance to heaven is with a goodness, with a righteousness that's not our own. So seeing Jesus face to face, seeing him as he is, as the Bible says, that's going to be the greatest thrill of all. But, you know, our mind quickly goes beyond that, right? Uh, I want to see people that I've loved and lost. Yeah. I want to see my mom. Pat, I think your grandmother recently yeah. passed away and, uh, in Italy. That's right. And yeah. you, you, know, you want to see those loved ones yeah. who've passed away in the Lord. You, you want to see them again. You, you want to you, you, you be with them again yeah. because you miss them. Sure. And you know, the, the thing about growing old, <laughs> I've had some old people say to me, Rex, the thing about growing old is eventually you have more people in heaven that you know than people here. And so you, you want to see those people again. You want to be with them again. You want to share old times, and you want that encouragement that you always had when you were around them. So there's tons of people I, I want to see, family. There's people I want to know, did they, did they ever trust Christ? Yeah. And are they in heaven? Yeah. You know, uh, the, the two most common comments in heaven are going to be, where is so-and-so, and what are you doing here, <laughs> right? <laughs> Where's so-and-so? They're not here? Yeah, and, surprise. Oh, my gosh, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, because the first will be last and the last first. The, the people who will be making headlines in heaven aren't the people necessarily that you'd think yeah. that are making headlines down here. I, I think it's point. the So I want to see... I want to see some of those dear people. But can I add another thing to that, Pat? Are we okay on time? Yeah, can I add yeah, another part? You know, the thing that stokes me so much about heaven is I want to learn. I want to learn. Pat, I want to see, I want to see God do a replay of creation and how he actually created the heavens and the earth. You know, it replayed, replayed. Yeah. I know we have the accounts in scripture and <laughs> what, what we know there, but there's so much that's left out, right? Yeah. I want to see a replay of that. I want to see, I want to go back in history and kind of punch rewind and see some of the great events in history. Boy, I hope we can do that in heaven. I hope we can keep learning in heaven because I'm a learner. Yeah. I, I want to keep, keep growing, growing and developing. Yeah. yeah. And so in addition to seeing the wonders of heaven that we talked about today, I, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to I find out about so many things. I've often said to people, Pat, there's so many people listening right now that probably never heard me say this, but they need to know this probably about me. Uh, 
if I had nine lifetimes to live, I could easily, easily fill eight of them just by reading and learning new things. I love to learn and grow. So I hope I hope heaven will be a place like that yeah, you made, where we can keep expanding. Yeah, absolutely. You, you made a wonderful point this morning in the sermon about God is the God of creativity. Yeah, and do not yeah. think heaven is this boring, oh my mundane place. It's a place of growth and, and, and yeah. uh, excitement. And so yeah. I thought that was uh, fantastic. But I, you know, I do believe line. there's a good deal of concern out there. <laughs> about boredom in heaven, honestly, because th- there's been this thing promoted that all we're going to do is stand and sing. Yeah. And they get that from chapters four and five where the people are around the throne, holy, holy, holy. you know, saying, holy, holy, yeah. holy yeah. is the Lord yeah. God almighty who yeah. was and is and has come. Yeah. Well, if, if that's what we're saying over and over again for eternity, I mean, I think, I think we're stuck in a groove a little bit. Trust me, folks, that's not all we're going to do. Obviously, we'll be ecstatic. Yeah. And our... Our lives will be overwhelmed with gratitude for our King and our Lord who has made it possible for us to be with Him forever. Mm-hmm. But that's not all we're doing. Are you listening to me? That's not all we're doing in heaven. Get ready. It's going to blow your socks off. Amen. It's going to blow your mind. So there's so many things when I start thinking about that question, so many things I look forward to in heaven. But expanding, growing, learning yeah. is certainly a huge, huge part, part of that. Of that's great. We got a fig tree question. That's fig right, tree. A fig tree question. Tell me about what this is fig the significance tree? of the fig tree as it relates to the end times? What is the significance of the fig tree as it relates to the end times? <clears throat> okay. Fig tree. Now, here's one where we have to ask okay, what are their presuppositions? So, whoever submitted this question. I don't know who, who these people are. Who, sure. I don't know who the people are who submitted the question. So whoever this submitted this question, the question would be, first of all, what are your eschatological presuppositions? Okay, Rex, get bit of the, big, rid of the big words. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, here, here's the reason that has to be asked. If you're an amillennialist, Uh, You generally just think of the fig tree as simply a metaphor. It's a metaphor that Jesus used. Jesus often used that metaphor in his teaching. It appears in the the Gospels. And uh, it's all about seeing when the fig tree is ripening. In other words, seeing the signs of the times and being ready for that. Okay? So it's a metaphor that's very generic in nature. Mm Mm-hmm. But if you're a dispensational premillennialist, go with me here, just answering the question, then you believe it has a very specific meaning. And here's what the dispensational premillennialists believe the fig tree means. This is why we're doing this. This is why we're sipping the cappuccino. You asked for it. All right, you're about to get it. Here we go. Jesus made this amazing statement in Matthew 24, he talked about learning the parable of the fig tree when its branch is yet tender and it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, so likewise, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Now, if you're a dispensational premillennialist, you believe that so much of eschatology is about Israel. It's not so much about the church as it's about Israel. So the fig tree to the dispensationalist is a reference to the nation of Israel. Just as England has been known as the lion, just as America is known by the eagle, just as Russia is known by the bear. There are these various creatures that kind of emblemize or represent various nations. Israel, you would say, is known by the fig tree. And so you would go back to this passage and you would say, look, Jesus said here, when the fig tree is blooming, there's a sign, the end is near. Who's the fig tree? The fig tree is Israel. And so, so many of my friends who are dispensational premillennialists would say, 
Don't you know what happened, Rex? On May the 14th, 1948, on May the 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation again. The fig tree started blooming. And Jesus said in Matthew 20, this generation will not pass away. Okay? So that's basically the World War II generation that we'd be talking about there. Yeah. There are how many thousand? I'd lost track. I saw a stat once that so many thousand World War II vets are passing away every single day, I believe it is, or yeah. week yeah. in America. We still know a few of them around here. So they would say, wow, this is upon us right now. Yeah. This generation will not pass away. Now, that view is beginning to be pushed a little bit because a generation biblically is typically thought of as 40 years. That's a generation in the Bible, 40 years. I heard, I'll not name him just to protect his anonymity. There's a major radio personality, a wonderful man who's been used mightily by God. I have a book in my library that he wrote back in the 1970s where he predicted that he has this view that Israel's the fig tree, that the restoration of Israel as a nation was the key to the end times. And he says in there, taking the 40 years as a generation, that the world cannot go past 1988. Mm. That, by the reason, by the way, is one of the reasons that Edgar Wisnott wrote his book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. Because May 14th, 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. The fig tree's beginning to bloom. All right? Can't go beyond a generation. This generation will not pass away. If you take a generation as 40 years, then, then Edgar right. was, was thinking straight, and this other leader I referred to was thinking straight. Can't go beyond 88, but obviously it has. Yeah. So whatever Jesus meant, whatever that reference was to, it's, it's going beyond 40. Yeah. But uh, eventually we'll have to say, wow, if, if he goes on and Christ does not return real soon, we'll have to say, wow, it must have meant something else. Mm. there so i hope that answers the question the fig tree for many people (laughs) represents israel the nation of israel and so the way they would interpret that let it let it sink in it really adds urgency oh my goodness we must be in the very last of the last days pat yeah if that's what that's referring to we've got to be in the last of the last last days Because that generation is passing away, Away, believe me, very rapidly. Mm. Who would have thought so much behind the fig tree? So whoever asked that question, (laughs) thank you. Uh, That's what we mean by (laughs) sipping the cappuccino. We're slowing around. You can see I could never deal with that kind of stuff uh, (laughs) on a Sunday morning. That's good. That's good stuff. Now, as you know, we've been asking for questions throughout the series. And this is one that came through in an email It's a little long. I'm going to read it to you, okay? So a few parts to it. (laughs) Hi, Pastor Rex and the team. The Revelation series has been very informative, challenging, inspiring, edifying, and refreshing, to say the least. Thank you. (laughs) When Jesus is first seen by John, the beloved, it is a very powerful scene. And instead of John, who was so close to Jesus that he laid his head on Jesus' chest, the Last Supper, parenthetically, and was there beside Mary, probably holding her crucifixion, John, quote-unquote, fell at his feet as though dead, Revelation 1.17. In light of the previous verse, and in particular, quote, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword, Revelation 1.16. <laughs> Excuse me. I think of complete submission to a conquering king, as opposed to John embracing a close friend after not seeing him for many years. You get Mm -hmm. that? Well, later in Revelation, the term is mentioned twice, quote, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Right. Revelation 19, 15. And again, the sword, quote, the sword that came out of his mouth, Revelation 19, 21. And in the context of a king leading his army of angels and saints, Parenthetical conquering king, 
with the beast being captured, verse 20a, and the rest were killed, verse 21. Although the settings are battlegrounds, and Rex had mentioned you, had mentioned in the 1128 and 1129 sermons that this battle is, quote, very different and, quote, lopsided. Mm -hmm. But what isn't mentioned in our beloved pastor's sermons, not nor in my NIV study Bible commentary. Okay. Does the sword from his mouth infer and or mean the action is accomplished by Jesus simply speaking the word and without incident and without lifting a finger, it is fulfilled? Please, and it, and, and it con concludes, please feel free to add any other important points you'd care to mention about this. We are listening, Pastor. All right, it's a great question, and I... <laughs> Thanks for reading reading the whole uh, question because it kind of gives context yeah. to it. But really, it all boils down to a fairly straightforward question at the end there. You know, is this accomplished? Is this victory accomplished yeah. simply by Jesus speaking the word and without incident, without kind of sword and blood and, you know, lifting a finger? And, and the answer to that is, uh, again, and forgive me, but I have to always say it depends on which view you buy into. Yeah. So let me give the two major viewpoints on that. Uh, one of the viewpoints is that there will still be an actual battle. Okay? And the reason they believe there will still be an actual battle is because if you take it more literally there, more literally, it says, you know, the angel is standing in the sun and he's saying uh, to the birds of the air, come gather together for the great feast. You can eat the flesh of kings, generals, of, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Mm. That's what the angel is saying to the birds, the vultures flying in the air. Mm. Come and get ready to pick the flesh, if I can be so raw, pick the flesh Gosh, off yeah. these bones, baby. Mm -hmm. There's about to be a lot of carnage. And so if you take it all literally, you have to believe that in spite of that sword out of his mouth imagery, there's still going to be a lot of carnage there, yeah. a lot of death. And if you take it all literally again, I'm just saying if that's your view, the blood according to chapter 14, rises as high as the horse's bridles, okay, for a long, long distance, <laughs> about 200 miles, most would say. Wow. So again, if you take that literally, that is staggering to the imagination to try to wrap your brain around that, that there could be that much blood spilled, all right? Mm. Uh, so if, you, if that's your perspective, a utterly literal view you have to say there's a lot of carnage here and the sword out of his mouth however he accomplishes that there's going to be a lot of people actually dying on the battlefield mm. and so that that plain of Jezreel there the valley of Esdraelon that's overseen by Mount Megiddo there in northern Israel where uh, traditionally the battle of Armageddon is said to be fought mm. that's what Revelation 19 is describing then you would have to believe there's a lot of carnage. Now, so that's one view. <laughs> if you're a more symbolic person, you simply believe that what's described there in that great battle, which it never really gets into the detail of, it never gives you the detail, the ebb and flow, the momentum shifts. It, it doesn't show you any of that. That's why I use the word lopsided in my sermon, which this yeah, person referenced. apparently picked up on. Yeah. Uh, I'm impressed by that kind of detail, okay? Mm -hmm. Um it seems that the Lord just cleans house. And uh, no, no, I, I, I take no all of that more symbolically. I think this is just talking about Jesus coming and just cleaning house and yeah. getting victory over his enemies. And I don't take the references to blood as literal. I, 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 I'm not sure if you did the math, you could, you could have that much blood. Um, if, if every person on earth was killed and all their blood spilled and put in one place. I, I, so the literal thing stretches my faith too much there. I, I don't see how that can happen. So um, there, there's the answer to that. I believe, I believe my perspective is that, yes, this is speaking symbolically about how the Lord, with his very word, just as 
just as God spoke the word into exist the world into existence, yeah. and uh, just as His word has always been powerful, I believe it's it's a symbolic way of saying He will come and conquer His enemies with the sword that proceeds out of His mouth. Mm. So, apocalyptic language, Pat, is fluid like that. Yeah. So. Anytime you start pressing it too much, literally, you get into trouble. You, you start going, you start scratching your head going, well, that doesn't make sense. How can that fit? No, it's meant to be fluid. It's meant to be flexible. Don't try to press every point. Mm. That's the whole way that apocalyptic language works. Yeah. It's flexible. It's fluid. So we must not insist on perfect rationality everywhere. Yeah. Like we would in one of Paul's letters or something. There you insist on perfect reason, but not with apocalyptic literature. It's flexible. It's fluid. So I love the question. And yes, I believe it will be, it's just simply symbolic way of saying he's coming to, if I can put it so theologically, he's coming to kick butt. (laughs) No contest. No contest. No contest. No contest. Did you say if you had nine lives, you would spend eight studying and reading and studying? I love it that much. Very obvious, my friend. I love it that much uh, in this series, and uh, and 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 we appreciate that. You know, there was a question that came uh, through the um, the web here, but it popped. It popped up. I cannot see it, but I'm going to paraphrase it. Okay. Because you remember what it said? Yeah, it's it it was related to this morning's sermon. Okay. And and the question, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it was along the lines that you stated this morning that um, heaven is a literal place. Okay. Okay? And this particular questioner wanted to dive a little bit into that a little bit more and pose the question, well, how do you know it's literal and not symbolic? What gives you that uh, belief? Yeah, well, how do you know? Well, without getting... uh, uh, I'm tempted here to get into a discussion of epistemology... Which Will is that the be whole hour? That would be a whole hour, <laughs> and, and we'd lose our entire audience at that point. H- how do we know anything would be a question I would want to pose to the listener. H- how do we know anything? How do we know it? You know, how do we get knowledge? And so uh, the whole question that we've been grappling with through the book of Revelation is what is literal and what is symbolic? I even kind of tease people. Uh, today and said, I'm glad I could help you with that. Uh, and everybody chuckled, but that is the question that always plagues us. How do we know what is symbolic and what is literal? We faced it just now in the previous question. We face it over and over and over again. And so that's why you pick your school of thought yeah. and you go from there. Yeah. So if if the questioner is asking, I love the question. So whoever asked it, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, but if they're asking, can I give a slam dunk answer to that? No, I can't give a slam dunk answer as to why it's literal, nor can I give a slam dunk answer to why it's symbolic. You have to just take your presuppositions and run with them. All right. You show me your presuppositions and I'll show you where you're going to end. But with that said, that is a philosophical base. Let me tell you why I believe it's an actual place, because I think that gets at the heart. Yeah. Because Jesus, in a non-apocalyptic section of the Bible, in John 14, for instance, said, I go to prepare a place for you. That is not apocalyptic literature. That is simply a section of the Gospel of John. Jesus called it a place. Honestly, that's good enough for me right there. I believe it's a place simply because... He said it, okay? So that would be my main rationale for calling it a place. Hmm. Jesus said it. <laughs> so that's in pretty good company. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, he said it in a section where there's no, there's no exegetical clues that he was speaking symbolically there. Yeah. Not a single clue. Everything he's talking about there is in sort of in concrete terms. I go to prepare a place Place. for you. I'm going to come back physically, literally, and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's not apocalyptic language. There's nothing about that section that has apocalyptic codes about it. Okay. So that's why I believe it's a place. I know there was a lot of the specific measurements 
I think you mentioned, of human dimension and human measurement. And does that. Which the angel was using. Yeah. And that's another thing <laughs> we could throw out there to say that while there certainly may be symbolic parts in Revelation 21 and 22, it's an interesting phrase to throw in there, I think, yeah. when you're talking about the dimensions themselves. John threw in that detail. Why did he throw that in? According to man's measurements, which the angel was using. Yeah. Whoa. It just makes you what an interesting detail. Yeah. So even I there kind of sit up and go, and I tend to take much of the book symbolically. Mm. I can make more sense of it that way. Yeah. But I, I tend to sit up and go, well, wait a minute. When it comes to the dimensions, I think he's giving us a clue here that that may be literal. Yeah. And I pointed that out, I think, in the sermon. Well said. Well, Rex, I think we're uh, coming to the close here. Okay. And um, I think you have a little ending, closing question. Well, yeah, Perhaps I mean, you want to pose to all of us. This has, been, this has been a lot of fun, Pat, for me. And I, again, I appreciate you, brother, being a part of this. But I, I would want to pose to all of the wonderful folks listening right now, um, assuming our fig tree question didn't lose everybody. <laughs> Actually, we just got... No, I want hours of this. That's, this is what it says. No, I want hours of They're this. They're gluttons for punishment. It's what they are. All right. It's been fun to sip the cappuccino. But you know, as we draw to a close here, seriously, I've got a question for all of you listening. And I, I really want to ask this. I've been receiving your question. I want to ask you a question. Here's my question for everyone. If you knew and really knew that Jesus was coming back, Within 24 hours, what difference would that make in your life? What would you do differently? Would you, would you go and ask for someone's forgiveness? Would you extend forgiveness to someone? If you really knew he were coming within 24 hours, you, you just had these few hours left, what would you make a priority? What conversation would you have? What relationship might you mend? Mm. I think it's a, an intriguing question. But here's the bottom line. Yeah. Whatever that would be that you would do, and I hope you'll ponder it for a while, yeah. whatever action you would take, if you knew he were returning and you only had a few hours left, here's the thing. If it's that important, shouldn't you go and do that anyway? Mm. Even though you don't know if he's coming back in 24 hours. Jesus wants us to live every day with a sense of responsibility and a sense of expectancy. He wants us to live with wisdom. And so I urge you to do that every single day of your life. All said. Well, we're out of time. We want to thank all of you for participating, for being so engaged, for submitting such awesome questions. And um, Rex, we want to thank you, brother, uh, for your insight, for your wisdom, again, for your incredible balanced perspective that you brought to this uh, powerful book. And again, I think we're all indebted to your wisdom and your discipline of study and uh, how yielded you are to, to, to the Holy Spirit. And, uh, of course, I want to thank you for carving out some time out of your busy schedule to dive a little deeper as we sipped the cappuccino. So, Amen. So, it's brother, been a fun thank journey. you, man. Thank it's been you, a fun and journey. God bless you. And so, again, we thank you for watching this evening, and we thank you for your participation. And may God bless you and your families. Bye now. <laughs>